Please remain standing, and if you would, go ahead and turn in your scriptures. I know it says Judges 21, 25, but I'd ask you first to turn to Judges 17, verse 6. You will see why. Don't worry, I'm not going to start reading there through the end. Um, I did tell somebody this morning we were going to look at the entire book of Judges, and they called out to change their lunch plans. Um, That won't be necessary. We're looking at an overall theme, but I want you to see it before we meditate on it. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Drop down to 18, verse 1, In those days there was no king in Israel. Drop down to 19, verse 1, Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. And then turn to 21, 25, and there you'll be able to stop turning your pages as we will camp out in this verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Pray with me. Father, we are, we are blessed to be in your presence. And Lord, you have begun a work in each of us, but yet we have far to go in our understanding and our maturity. Lord, there's so much of the remnants of sin, it seems, within us that we cannot always comprehend here what you say to us, which is baby talk for you. I pray that you would give us understanding this morning. Open our ears to hear, our eyes to see truth, our hearts to warm to what you are telling us, and wills that would be tender and would surrender to your your purposes for us. Lord, glorify yourself here this morning, we pray in Christ's name. And remember... We have a new point to our liturgy. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for this word. Amen. Please be seated. Now, many of you probably don't know, but this is the third time I've been scheduled to preach and finally made it here. Um, The first time, actually, uh, Seth was going to be out of town and I was going to be here, so it seemed to work out, but plans changed and I got called out of town and Seth got called to stay. So this got put on the shelf. And then the second time, the church flooded. That that was supposed to be my Sunday. And uh, there were rumors as to the cause of that, maybe being an individual um, or not, but we won't name her. That just narrows it down to 50%, you see. So you figure it out. Uh, But then the opportunity came up one more time. And judges may seem a little out of place this morning, but at the time... My intention was, as Seth was doing a New Testament series, that when I got the opportunity, I would preach something close to wherever we're at in our Bible reading. So how many are still reading and on semi-on schedule? Very good. Well, this morning you're in Isaiah 54-ish, right? And, uh, well, we're obviously not there, but this was so close to when I had preached on Joshua and we looked at the book of Joshua that I kind of got stuck here. And then I couldn't throw away all that preparation anyway when the schedule got changed. So we're back into Judges this morning. Um, Judges. And like I said, I love going verse by verse, but there are times, I think, when we we back out a little bit with our focus and we look at a little bit bigger uh, message or a bigger portion of Scripture. And I think this is healthy because then when we dive back into the Scriptures, into the individuals, it's like we we have that map through the trees. And so we, we learn something 
of it that then we can, we can as we pick parts out, maybe gives us greater clarity or understanding. So today we are actually looking at the entire book of Judges, but we're looking at a main, main theme or main focus. Now you remember Mark Furtado has filled in for us on many occasions over the years. And what is one thing he said that you ought to just be drilled into our minds at this point? When a Hebrew writer wants you to know what something is about, what does he do? Repeats it. Repeats it. In the last five chapters, our verse gets repeated in part or in whole, four times. And since it comes within these two episodes, divided up among two chapters, three chapters, um, at the end of the book, you've got to think, this is a summation. There is something about this that helps us understand the entire book of Judges. And if, due to the feebleness of the speaker, uh, you don't get anything else today, I want you to see that Judges talks to us about the need for a king, which should be obvious just from reading these four passages. And then, of course, if we're going to talk about the need for a king, then we have to discuss what, who is the king we need. What are we looking for? Who are we looking for? And what would that mean for us today? So as we look for an application from the Old Testament times, the need for a king and the king that we need. Now, we're going to look at this in more like four stages because we can't just stick with two. I tried to get to three since it's Trinitarian, but we're not there. So if you remember nothing, remember the two, but we're going to look at this in four steps. So we have the days of the judges, because our text says, in those days. So what days were they? And then we have these illustrated summaries as we come to the highlight or the finish or the, 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 the mountain peak of judges. So that's number two. The third one is we're going to look at the root of the problem. Because when you read through judges, is it not kind of a dark book, a frustrating book? In some places, it's one of the R-rated books of the Old Testament, and in, in, for, for families that are here with their kids, I will be careful. Okay, but, but it's just a fact. The Bible does not paint all rosy pictures. And so the book of Judges can be a very dark book. So the days of the Judges, these, these, this high point illustrated summary where our text is found this morning, then we will look at the root of the problem, which will lead us then to the king that we need. So in those days, the days of the Judges, when there was no king, let me set it back into context since we've somewhat separated ourselves from the times of Joshua. Joshua, we said, started with the Israelites on the plains of Moab, ready to move into the promised land, and it followed through the book of Joshua about seven years. And by the time they left the plains of Moab to where they were in at least functional control of the promised land that God had promised them 600 years prior, it had only covered about seven, seven years. Judges follows immediately on the heels of that, and if you look at the beginning of the book, there is a little bit of overlap, because Joshua, who died at the end of Joshua, is alive again, and we get to read about his death again. So there's some overlap, which I find interesting as it starts out. But the book of Judges, from that moment until the beginning of the monarchy, covers about 300 years. So even though it's actually a shorter book, it covers a great longer period of time. And that is actually seen in our first 16 chapters as we go through the time of Samuel because that, that is understood as Israel is defeated again and the Ark of the Covenant is removed. That takes us right up to the times of Samuel leading to the first king, Saul. Um, so that's for what it's worth to whoever enjoys the historical context, but I certainly do, so we weren't going to skip it. So from seven years to a period of 300 years plus or minus, it actually starts out well. You know, there was the, uh, there was the conquest. And then for 12 chapters in Joshua, there's the apportionment of the land of the various tribes. And they did not conquer all the enemies within the land, but had functional control. And they were supposed to do the mop-up duties. Started out well with the first, first judge, Othniel. Um, 
had some success. Uh, but that ended very quickly. So that they would, they would try to take over the rest of the land and they would fail. Um, and so we see this throughout Judges, which then leads to a whole down, downgrade cycle. There are some great stories in Judges. When I was a teenager, there was briefly a show on TV called Jake and the Fat Man. Well, but it wasn't very popular. It didn't last very long, um, as, which is probably why do I like stuff like that. But in Judges, we start out with the first of these, these stories uh, with Ehud and the fat man. You know, the guy that was so fat that Ehud could bury a knife in him and it disappeared, right? So great stories. Ehud and the fat man. It ends with, uh, it goes through another story of jail and the tent peg where she nails a man to the ground with a tent peg. You see, that'd be R-rated for violence and blood. Okay, it ends with, uh, with three chapters, uh, four chapters really on Samson, the strongest man the world has ever seen, uh, has ever known. Uh, but all of these things were a downgrade, a downgrade cycle. Things went from bad to worse during this time. So it begun well, but it fell off. And the fact is that when the going got tough for God's people, basically they quit. That takes us to one of our episodes this morning as we see the relocation of part of the tribe of Dan to the north. It's because when they tried to conquer the land, they failed, and they were not faithful. They did not persevere. And so they set about to make some changes that were not necessarily God-ordained. When the going got tough, they quit, which shows that they were being faithless because true faith perseveres. Their actions showed their true selves. And then we enter into these cycles throughout the book of Judges in the first 16 chapters, cycles of sin where they turned their backs on God, apostasy, when God allowed oppressors to come in to oppress them as his discipline to turn them back. Over time, this led them to repentance where they, they, they put away their idols, turned back to God, and then he would raise up a judge who would come and deliver. And that really is the meaning of judge uh, in this context. Uh, the judge is a deliverer. He is temporary. He is occasional. It is non-hereditary, so it is not a king. But it was God's divinely appointed means to bring deliverance to his people. But it didn't last. It didn't last because soon as people were comfortable again, and really, when do you think you're in the greatest danger when it comes to temptation and sin? Is it when you're in the middle of the fight or is it when you're comfortable? You know? Yeah, yeah. For me, comfort kills me every time comfort well they had these cycles it was a downward spiral um greater suffering greater oppression for longer periods of time declining character of the judges themselves have you ever noticed that samson was an absolutely basically a godless man until the very end the only time samson addresses god at all is when he prays right at his death to help me kill more people okay that's the only time he was a man driven by his lusts and his impulses he was not a good man, but he was the man God used to effect a deliverance to his people for a time. And so God receives all the glory. So, what does this tell us? What does this tell us? It's not spoken yet. It doesn't come to us till the beginning, early in chapter 17. But what it tells us is these people need a king. These people need a leader of some kind. One who one who will guide them, one who will point them in the right direction, one who will, who will teach and preach and, and, and cause them to walk in the ways of God, who had made them covenant promises, who had committed himself to them. They need a king. This is kind of like, you remember when Moses came down from Sinai? When Moses went up to Sinai, he was gone for what, 40 days. For 40 days. 
I don't have 40 fingers there, do I? He was gone for 40 days. How many days did it take before the people went off into sin and said, where's this Moses? Make for us a calf, Aaron. Make for us a god and lead us back to Egypt. You know, it took no more than 40 days. Makes you wonder how soon in that did the party start. Well, the judges is like that stretched out over time. When Moses was gone, the people were unrestrained because they, they did not have the leadership. And so something took over. And so something led to a decline. There was the need for a king. Now we come to chapter 17 through 21, and these are kind of like the illustrated summaries of the whole book. What is fascinating to me, you know how something else Dr. Furtado taught us, is that Hebrew don't always write chronologically. They write thematically. And so actually the happenings in chapter 17 through 21 probably happened in the first 70 to 100 years of that 300-year period, period of the Judges. And we know this because of various names of places and events and everything that happened in these episodes that tell us it happened fairly early. So it's not like this was the high point of the decline as it is a summary of the period of the Judges and the failures of the people. And so we come to chapter 17 through 21, a gathering up in a two-part narrative of a summary of in those days. These two episodes are tied together in various ways. We have grandsons mentioned here by name, uh, grandsons of Moses, grandsons of Aaron. We have the city of Bethlehem, who, which is in each episode. We have a Levite as one of the main characters. And all these things, not to mention our fourfold repetition of in those days there was no king. These are all tied together, all building up to make one point, the need for a king. They need a king. We need a king. So there was no king. Moses and Joshua, who were sort of filled the role of kings, gave them a godly leadership, are gone, and very quickly the people became unrestrained. Um, there's different ways of restraining people, you know. External circumstances. Or internal. That's why our founders said that, that, that our form of constitution, our form of government was only, only adequate for a moral people. Because, because when, the, when the inside, when the internal restraints disappear, that leaves only external restraints. And they have to become more and more. They have to become more and more oppressive in order to control. We need a king. We need a king who can deal externally when necessary. We need a king who can do something on the inside. We need a different kind of king. So there was no king. Moses and Joshua were gone. The people became unrestrained. And everyone did what was right for themselves. Everyone judged what was right and wrong for themselves. This really takes us clear back to our first parents in the garden, does it not? Because God said, don't eat of the tree. And what did Eve do? When she was deceived, she looked at it. And she thought, what's so wrong with that? She decided what was right or wrong for herself. She decided that she would be God in place of God, and she went and gave it to her husband who took it and ate, and he did the same thing. He chose to decide for himself. He did what was right in his own eyes by the appearance of it rather than according to the word of God. So this is not a new sin. This is a sin that is common to mankind. This is a sin that you and I do all the time. We decide for ourselves. We say we will be king. I'll be king of me. That's the wrong attitude. So without regard for God's rule or God's law, everyone did what was right for themselves, what was right in their own eyes. They were blind rebels against their creator and redeemer. Now, our two narratives. Again, we're going to sum it up. 
There's way too much detail here. In the first episode, what you're going to see is uh, apostasy, idolatry. And so this goes, obviously, against the word of God and the covenant that God had made with his people. We see the main character, Micah, who is himself a thief. He even stole from his own mother and only gave it back when he heard her pronounce a curse upon the one who would steal. So he's not some moral uh, icon for us to follow. He's a thief. He's an idolater. He's superstitious. He responded only when he heard his mother's curse. He is religious, as every culture in the world is, but he's wrong. He has chosen a religion for himself. He's doing what was right in his own eyes. He sets up a shrine in his own house. At first he appoints his son as a priest and eventually replaces him with a Levite for hire that came wandering by. He just thought, great, now I'm even better off. I have a Levite, part of one of God's chosen tribes. The Levite, whose name we only find out towards the end of it, is not a priest. Even though a Levite could be a worker in the temple, he was not a priest. He was not a son of Aaron. That was reserved for him alone, but he's hired himself out to be a priest. So he hires himself out as a priest for a single household to worship in a place where God had not appointed. And he, uh, he takes control and represents or works before an idolatrous shrine. And this is the man who is most likely a grandson of Moses. Now, that's not obvious at first in the text, and I don't want to say it as 100%. I want to be fair to the text, but most. Most of what I could find on that said so this is probably Moses' grandson, and his name is Jonathan. Two generations, max. And look how bad it's gotten. This is idolatry and nothing else. There's no other way to label it or put a fancy title on it. They have rejected the true worship of God, and they have set up for themselves a form of religion of their own choosing, what was right in their own eyes. Also in this episode, the, the Dan, the tribe of Dan, had not been able to take all their land because the people in the valleys had chariots and they didn't, and they became fearful. They didn't trust God to continue giving them what he had promised, even though he had given them already a portion of what he had promised. He had shown his faithfulness. There was nothing lacking in God. There was lacking in the tribe of Dan. But they decided, we need to find a place for us to settle. And so they began to look elsewhere, and they sent out an an ambassador, a, a group of people to go and look. They couldn't take their own land, so what they did was they turned around and looked for easier prey, and they became bullies because they went on an unsanctioned expedition to the north, and they found themselves a town that was basically an undefended people, and they used an unjust violence to gain what was not theirs. There is nothing good about this episode. And along the way, they came in contact with this house of Micah and stole his idols and took his priest and threatened him to keep his mouth shut. There's nothing good here. We have spiritual apostasy to an extreme. We have people choosing to do what's right in their own eyes and nothing less. They are guilty. It is not some lacking in God. It is lacking in them. How did we get here and how did we get here so quickly? What's the problem? Second episode, and this is one of those ones that is R-rated, so of necessity, I will leave much of it out, and the parents can deal with this in their own homes. But let me sum it up. There was another Levite who had himself a woman, a concubine, a semi-married relationship in the Old Testament, but she had run away and gone back to her hometown in Bethlehem. So after a while, he decides, you know what, I miss her. I'm going to go to Bethlehem and retrieve my woman, 
And he goes and he ends up spending several days in a drunken stupor with her father. That's, that's really the reality of it. And after a few days, he decides late in the day, because they'd already been up early drinking again, so he leaves a little late and doesn't get as far as he'd hoped, and so through various compromises, ends up in a town called Gibeah. Gibeah, if you read this episode and compare it to the language in Genesis 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah, Gibeah has become Sodom and Gomorrah in the heartland of Israel, among God's people. Many of the phrases, much of the language here is nothing but a, but, but a rubber stamp from what you see in Genesis 19. That's, the author is telling us that's how bad it is. And so through the night here, some violence takes place. An episode takes place in this Sodom in the heartland of Israel. And the Levite ultimately saves himself by sacrificing his woman and tossing her to the crowd. And they abuse her throughout the night. She crawls back to the house and falls down dead while he's inside sleeping. That's how bad it's gotten and how quickly. So he picks her up, carries her on his donkey or whatever back to his hometown, cuts her up into enough pieces to send pieces around to all the various tribes of Israel so that they will be outraged and gather to say, what is up with all of this? Isn't that foul? Now, maybe that doesn't disturb us as much as it should because we watch the things like this for entertainment. Wow. Sodom in the heartland. Wow. So the tribes of Israel do gather. The tribe of Benjamin, where Gibeah is located, decides, you know what? You guys are just being judgmental. You're picking on Gibeah for a minor altercation. We're going to stand with her which leads to civil war among God's people, which ultimately leads to almost the entire wiping out of the tribe of Benjamin who are defending somebody on a false idea of justice. And there's nothing left of an entire tribe of God's people except 600, 600 men. And since they had all promised to not give their wives and daughters in marriage to any remnants, but yet didn't want to see a tribe totally erased from the land, they went and stole 600 other women and gave him back to these 600 men so they could repopulate. Where is the good here? Where is the good here? In fact, I haven't seen the new movie out that talks about trafficking, but is that not what this is? See, Old Testament fits still, doesn't it? Doesn't it? So they stole 600 women to give him his wives so they could repopulate. They addressed this initial heinous crime with an even greater crime, times 600. There is no good here. There is injustice throughout. Now let's make a special note. The order of these two episodes, I believe, has significance. What came first, the chicken or the egg? What came first, the apostasy or the degradation? Yeah. Yeah. Francis Schaeffer said that that's always the case, and he looks to the spiritual apostasy of the early 1900s as what preceded the sexual revolution and the, and the violence and stuff that flowed and the drug culture that flowed out of the 60s and 70s. Spiritual apostasy came first. The order is significant. Spiritual adultery, apostasy, idolatry, however, whatever word you want to use, leads to the societal degradation characterized by sexual immorality and violence. That's where it will always end up when people reject God. It's where it will always end up. My son actually says this is a reversion to paganism, which is the historical norm throughout, apart from the work of God that raises up. 
I think that's an excellent statement, an excellent truth. Always, always ends up there. The need for a king. The need for a king. So what is the root of the problem? What can work in the external coercion or circumstances necessary to keep an orderly society and also do something in a, inside a man so that he restrains himself so that there can be an orderly society? The root of the problem is sin. That's clearly on display here. That's clearly throughout the book of judges. Sin, not the sins which are the result of sin, but sin itself is the root of the problem, the corruption of our very nature, the sinfulness in the shorter catechism number 18, the sinfulness of that estate wherein two men fell because of Adam's sin gives us not only the guilt of Adam's first sin, which, by the way, some would say, well, that's not fair. Why am I judged for this other man? who did? Because you're just like him. You're your daddy's son, and the apple hadn't fallen far away from the tree despite the generations. Okay, so the guilt of Adam's sin, the want of original righteousness. Remember, Adam actually had something we didn't. He had original righteousness, and yet he still chose to rebel against God and fell. And that corrupted our whole nature so that you are born that way. You are born in sin. You're born with a problem down in the root of your being. We need a king that can do something with that before we even worry about a king who can do something out out there. We need a king who can work in here. And then all other actual transgressions simply flow out of that. Flows out of what we are. When we see this kind of societal degradation and everything, what should we think? Should we think that, oh, this is all new, but there's nothing new under the sun. You know, this, this sin is always present. This sin is irresistible. And actually, it's like gravity. It's like through sheer effort or human will or people gathered together to try to build something it's like they can make a start but then they can't continue it they can't maintain the effort that's why empires have come and gone they can't maintain it because sin is like gravity it's that inexorable force that draws us back and causes us causes a society to collapse cause people to fall back into sin so strong so strong. This sin is personified early in the Bible in Genesis 4. This is, this is like when sin began. And yet Cain got angry with his brother. And what did God say as a warning? But sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. It is the eternal enemy. And it is that irresistible force that drags us down. Because that's the curse of sin. Man rebelled against his creator. And this sin is universal. And Romans 6 tells us we are slaves to it. We need a king. Judge illustrates all this. Judges illustrates all this. Points to the need for a king. But what kind of king? Obviously not just another run-of-the-mill human king. People have put their hopes in all kinds of kings, earthly kings over the years. And where has it gotten them? We need a different kind of king. We need a different kind of king. We need a king who can not only deal with the externals, but one who can overcome our nature, one who can actually pay for our sins because an offense has been made and needs paid for. We need a king who can lead us into all righteousness. We need a king who can present us before the throne on high because we will all end up there. We will all stand before our maker someday. We will end up there. And if we walk in based on our own strengths, our own qualities, our own positives, whatever, boy, we better not walk in at all. But you are going to be called to appear. We need a king 
who can deal with all of this mess, who can make this right, who can roll back all the effects of the curse. That is the primary problem. That is what Judges illustrates through and through. The gravity and the slavery of sin. The need for a king. Now, but that's, thank God, and that's not using his name in vain. I mean that wholeheartedly. Thank God. (laughs) He didn't leave it there. And he doesn't leave us there. No, no, no. I have good news for you. The king we need is the king who has come. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We will not take the time to trace it this morning because I promised you I would not have you out of here at 2.30. But let me just say that Jesus Christ himself, the person, the divine God-man, is the fulfillment of all the king theme that is sown all throughout the New Testament. Starting with Adam. Adam was put in the garden and he said, here, work it, keep it, guard it. And then be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. See, that's the role of a king from the very beginning. God always intended to give a king. Many people don't understand that because in 1 Samuel, Samuel says that God says that the people sinned in asking for a king. But they sinned in asking for a king like the nations around them. And God gave them a king like the nations around them in their first king to teach them a lesson. But he intended to give a king all along. He gave laws for the king in Deuteronomy so that the king had special laws he was supposed to follow and he's supposed to read God's law daily and lead people into what is righteousness before God. So he intended to give us a king and he sowed it throughout the scriptures. Adam was the first kingly person. Abraham, part of the promise was not just a place and a people, but he said kings will go forth from you. He was going to be the father of kings. Jacob's son, Judah, says the scepter will not depart from his house. There is a kingly authority that was granted to the tribe of Judah. Later focuses in on the person of David, the second king of Israel. And what did God promise to David in 2 Samuel? But, but that he would have a seed who would rule on the throne of David forever. And all these things throughout the Old Testament eventually take us to Matthew, which Seth is preaching in, and when I first started this, Seth was like just there in Matthew 1, so I wasn't going to have to add much. Let me just remind you of Matthew chapter 1. It starts with genealogies, and these genealogies are particularly important because it, it divides it among Abraham, David, and then Jesus, the son of David. And that's because Jesus, in chapter 121, where he says, you should call his name Jesus because it is he who will save his people from their sins. This is the long-awaited king in fulfillment of the entire Old Testament pointing to a king. And this is a king different from other kings. This is the king we need. He comes and he fills offices for us. He fills and executes actually three different offices according to the scriptures, the office of prophet, priest, and king. So as a prophet, he reveals to us God's will for our salvation by his word and spirit. He comes and proclaims the favorable day of the Lord. As priest, then, he offers himself up as the sacrifice that satisfies divine justice because of sin. Not just our every individual sin, but that root of sin that has infected all of us because of the first sin. And Jesus becomes the answer to that problem as he offers himself as a sacrifice. And then as a king. I love this. This is just from the shorter catechism. As a king, he subdues us to himself. Through the work of the Spirit. That's step number one. He subdues us to himself. He overcomes everything in us that we are slaves to and can do nothing about that has left us spiritually unable to turn to God. He subdues us. He fixes it. 
from the inside out. He makes us a new creation. Titus 3, 5, and 6, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Christ has come, offered himself as a sacrifice that fully satisfies divine justice, has achieved everything where the first man failed. He has made it right, and he has been ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and has received from the Father gifts which he pours out upon his people, which effects their salvation. And he does this by the work of the Spirit. This is called regeneration or the new birth. In John 3, he told Nicodemus, anyone wants to enter the kingdom of heaven, he must be born again. And this is entirely a gift of God. So he pours out these gifts which he has received from the Father. He pours them upon God's people by the Spirit who are made alive spiritually from the dead, who experience the new birth, who become new creations. And then... We are governor, governable. We can now be governed by the one eternal king. He changes us from the inside. Let me give you just a couple more statements on regeneration. By this divine work, the sinner is recreated in and to newness of life. He has the defilement of his heart cleansed, is enabled to see and enter into the kingdom by faith, and enabled to believe in Jesus Christ. It is a God-given transformation. This impartation of new spiritual life effecting instantaneous change in the whole man, mind, heart, and will. So he changes our mind. We see the realities of sin in our condition. He changes our heart and our affections. So now we want the things of God where before we did not. We want him. He changes our will so that now we choose well. And we choose to follow our Savior by faith, which is itself the gift of God. He enables the sinner to respond in repentance and faith to the preaching of the gospel. The king we need is the king who has come. And he is the king who is coming again. He's coming again. He's not coming like he did the first time, by the way. In the first time I heard one pastor present, it's it's almost like God snuck him in. Yes, he declared it, but to an individual here or there. He did declare it to some shepherds in the fields at night, but only to them. And nobody in society listens to the shepherds anyway. It's almost like he snuck them in, in humility, in poverty, somehow to accomplish the will of God. He often does things the reverse or the opposite of what we think would be best, but he's not coming like that again. He is coming in power. He's coming in great glory. You can look at how God descended upon the earth at Mount Sinai, and there's nothing but darkness and thunder and lightning and earthquakes and rumbling in the mountains. Oh, I can't remember. It's in Habakkuk chapter 3, where he talks about when God shows up, even the eternal mountains tremble. That which we look at as permanent and solid and immovable trembles to the point of dissipating into dust at the presence of God. That is just something of the picture of the glory with which Christ himself will return. Every eye will see him. Every eye will see him as he comes in the clouds part in great glory and splendor. There will be the sound of the loud trumpet. And he'll come surrounded by the angels of God to gather his people to himself. He is not coming in humility next time, but in power and great glory. And all will see and all will know. And all will bow. 
all will bow. And then some will be sent away to the great fire, and his people will be gathered into the bosom of the Father to be eternally bliss, satisfied. Choose this day whom you will serve. Which king? Which king? Our response as the people of God, let us worship the king. That's why we gather one day a week. You need to be worshiping all the time. You need to remember the great truths of God and the glory of God and the promises of God. But in the meantime, let us worship the king. Let us follow hard after the king with zeal. He has given us tasks to reach the world. He's, he's called us out of this present darkness to walk in holiness. Let us follow hard after the king. Let us serve him and one another as we travel this pilgrim's path together. Isn't it such a joy that he didn't call you to walk on your own? Take care of one another. And let us declare his goodness, his mercy, and his judgment. That is part of the message of the gospel. People need to know that there is a day of judgment to come, and they should be fearful. And then you can point them to the king, the king we need, the king who has come, the king is returning. Let us, his people, find rest in him, in his all-sufficient work of redemption, in this regeneration, this new creation he has made us. We should be able to rest on these things, and let us anticipate his return with great joy for us. That is not a day to fear, but a day, but a day to, to, to reach for, a day to long for, a day to rejoice in even before it comes. Hey, it's going to be so good. You should start rejoicing now. You should. Eternity doesn't seem like enough time, does it? Let's get a head start. The king we need is the one who has come and who is returning. Praise be to God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father, it is never enough because you are too worthy. Truly, your glory cannot be displayed by us. It cannot be comprehended by us. But Lord, give us a taste. Give us a taste. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who is qualified to enter into your very throne room and to partake in the inheritance of the saints in glory. Lord, stir our hearts to anticipate this and to live in the light of this knowledge even now, glorifying you and rejoicing in your goodness. Lord, remind us something of the glory and goodness of God for his people. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.